Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew 17 will be in the second half of this chapter and finish it out this morning as we are in verses 14 through 17, 14 through 27. We're going to see the power of faith at work, the power of faith at work. We're going to see this key idea that faith is where God's strength meets our weakness. Faith is where God's strength meets us in our weakness. So we'll read together beginning in verse 14, Matthew 17, 14. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why couldn't we cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, A son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Well, what does it take to move a mountain? I mean, if you were literally trying to move a mountain, how would you do it? Well, you'd start out with a drill. You'd drill some holes, you'd tap into the side of the mountain, you put some explosive in those holes and you begin blasting away. And as you blasted away at this mountain, eventually you'd begin to make a little progress. And then maybe you could hire, I don't know, one of these giant dump trucks. You pull that dump truck up to the mountain and you begin loading up the truck. And you blast and you load and you blast and you load and you do it again and 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 again. If you do it enough times, just maybe you could actually move a mountain. Moving a mountain is no small task. And yet Jesus says today in one of the clearest statements about the power of faith that you will find anywhere in Scripture that it is possible for you to move a mountain if you trust in Jesus. So how is it that faith can move a mountain? And Jesus introduces us to this idea that faith could actually do this. Now, Jesus has just been up on a mountain with three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. They come down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and they reach the bottom of the mountain, and when they come into a crowd, scribes, Pharisees, different people, they're all there. We find them there, and he comes to a crisis. A man falls down at Jesus' feet, and he's desperate. He pleads for help. You see, he has a son, and his son is suffering terrible seizures. Seizures. Mark adds to Matthew's description and tells us that this spirit makes him mute. He can't speak. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams, he grinds his teeth, becomes rigid. He's in danger of drowning in water, in danger of being destroyed with fire. Imagine that the terror, the terror and the tension that this boy's family lives with, not just when he's experiencing these moments, but also the constant tension you would feel because you're afraid that he's going to experience one of these moments. It's living on a life's on a razor edge the entire time you're waking, living, breathing, walking, moving. We were recently with some friends, actually they were with us, staying uh, overnight at our house, and, and they have a, a young child who's a special needs. And I gotta tell you, you know, tracking any two or three-year-old is a chore. 
But tracking this child was unbelievable because, I mean, there were no boundaries. It didn't matter if it was toilet, if it was stairs, if it was cliff, it was wherever. He would find himself, and you just had to be constantly, constantly on, the, on watch. And these parents are living their lives on edge, and they've come to the disciples, and they've asked the disciples to heal this child, and only to find out the disciples can't do it. Their crisis is made worse by the disciples' failure. Verse 16, I brought him to your disciples. They couldn't heal him. Well, if you were to track back a few chapters to chapter 14, you'd find here something that we see over and over in the life of these disciples. In other words, the disciples find themselves failing over and over again in chapters 14 to 17. 14, 15, 16, 17, no less than 10 times do we see very clear, utter failure on the part of the disciples. Well, if you were to track back even a little bit further, you'd find in Matthew chapter 10 that Jesus has given his disciples authority to cast out demons, and they have already successfully done this. In other words, they have cast out demons, so they're surprised, no doubt, when they attempt this time something and they're unsuccessful. Well, how is it that Jesus responds as he encourages his disciples in their failure? Verse 17, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? I mean, Jesus is worn out with the disciples' faithlessness, their blindness. I mean, Psalm 103 tells us about the character of Jesus. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, but sometimes he will. And here he chides the disciples. He is patient, but there comes a time for rebuke, and he rebukes the disciples. British pastor G. Campbell Morgan had this to say of this moment. When Jesus comes down from the mountain, he found himself confronted by that helpless boy, that helpless father, that helpless age, and those helpless disciples. They're all utterly helpless, and Jesus is the only one who can intervene. There's no one else to step up. The disciples have cast out demons before. But one thing we see is that yesterday's success doesn't guarantee tomorrow's success. If you're any sort of business owner, you know this is true. A good 2018 doesn't guarantee you a good 2019, and a good 2019 doesn't guarantee you a strong 2020. You see, that's the thing about faith, too. Walking with Jesus isn't resting on your laurels. It's day-by-day experience. It's a relationship that's committed daily to walking with Christ, daily to prayer, daily to the Word. It's a constant process of growth, of growing step-by-step, little-by-little into the character of Jesus, one step forward, one day at a time. Romans 12 tells us about the importance of a constant commitment to Christ. I appeal to you, therefore, Paul says, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. In other words, it's an ongoing process, this transformation by being renewed by the Spirit of God. There's this emphasis on the ongoing process of renewal, and there are two sides to this coin. One is, it's important to just keep walking with Jesus. It's important to be in the Word, to be in prayer. It's important to gather with the body of Christ in worship. It's important to spend time with brothers and sisters in Christ. So don't miss the importance of a faithful, ongoing commitment to Jesus. If it's true for the disciples, it's true for us today. 
You see, a momentary experience, a spiritual moment, separate from a life of walking with Jesus isn't evidence that saving faith has actually taken root in our hearts. Jesus calls his disciples who have done amazing things, who have walked with him, he calls them faithless and twisted because they aren't walking with him today. You see, yesterday's victory doesn't guarantee tomorrow's success. But the good news also is this. Yesterday's failure doesn't guarantee tomorrow's failure. You see, some of us walk in here today and we come in not with reminders of our great victories, not with reminders of how good we are, how strong we are, how vibrant we are. We come in with reminders not of last year's failure, but of yesterday's failure. And if you were to measure the time between last Sunday and this Sunday, it's filled with reminders of guilt and shame and failure. And brothers and sisters, if that's where you find yourself this morning, not walking in victory, but carrying this gigantic burden of guilt, reminders of your sin, be reminded of this. The sun will come up tomorrow. And with the sun tomorrow will rise God's new mercies. You will wake up tomorrow, and as surely as you wake up, more surely than you will wake up, the sun will rise. And Lamentations 3 tells us it's a reminder of God's great faithfulness and that his mercies are new every morning. God's mercy will be sufficient for you tomorrow. God's grace will be sufficient for you tomorrow. No matter what your past failure is in Christ, there is no shame, no guilt, no sin too great for the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Yesterday's failure is no guarantee of tomorrow's failure. Just keep walking with Jesus. It's a great thing about walking with Jesus. Tomorrow is a new day. Tomorrow the sun will come up with a reminder of God's fresh mercy. The disciples fail, but Jesus succeeds. Where the disciples cannot, Jesus can. So we have this picture of the disciples' failure set in contrast to Jesus' success. Demons aren't kind of your everyday opponent. They're remarkably powerful beings. Listen to the description that Paul gives in Ephesians 6. They're rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It is no small thing to do battle with demons. And yet the picture of Jesus's power is overwhelming, almost casual. He rebukes them and instantly the boy is healed. There's no delay between command and response. Jesus is infinitely more powerful than the forces of darkness themselves. Recently, our kids have developed a new hobby. It's called wrestling on mom and dad's bed. Now, this can be a rather life-threatening or bed-threatening experience. But uh, one thing about wrestling is it tends to start pretty good-natured and end with someone getting mad. And so uh, I, was, I was observing this this week, and, and I could tell as the emotions were escalating. And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and say, let's stop right now before someone gets hurt or someone gets angry. And then my kids were asking me, well, Dad, did you ever wrestle when you were a kid? I was like, did I wrestle when I was a kid? I had eight brothers and sisters. What do you think we did? We wrestled all the time. But it normally ended with someone getting hurt or mad. That's just the way it works. And I remembered in particular my, uh, my younger brother and sister right below me. You know, we had nine kids, which I, I call them, they're like ecosystems within the family. So you kind of got, you know, there's a big spread. And so you kind of got the ones you hang out with. Well, my next youngest brother and sister, we'd wrestle all the time. Now, I was kind of at the top end of the, up, of the food chain. So if they made me mad, I'd go pound them. But if I made them mad, I'd just laugh at them. Because, you know, they're two years or four years younger than I. They're too small, and i just kind of hold them off, and I would laugh, and it just make them matter and matter and matter. But no matter how mad they got, it didn't matter because I was bigger than they were. Now, that brother's a lot bigger than I am. I don't wrestle with him anymore. 
But, but at the time, I could hold him off, and there was kind of, he was kind of no match because he's four years younger than I am. And I see this picture of the power of Jesus, and he's just kind of like, demons, no problem for me. His power is absolutely overwhelming. This is the God of David. David says, for who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? It's the God of Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 20. O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nation. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. This is the God of Job. This God hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the waters in thick clouds and the cloud is not split open under them. He covers the face of the full moon and spreads over it his cloud. He's inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. By his power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. By his wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him? By the thunder of his power, who can understand? Job says, we see the power of God. It's just the edge of God's power. You see the power of God displayed in creation. It's just the small beginning of what God can do. God is more powerful, more magnificent, more abundant than anything we could even conceive of. And God said this power is ours through Jesus. He holds up the disciples' powerlessness, and then he holds up Jesus' power. He holds up the disciples' faithlessness, and alongside that he sets Jesus' faithfulness. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has more than enough power for whatever life brings your way. The gap between God's infinite power and our experience, Jesus says, is filled by faith. The gap is only as wide as our faith is small. That's the next point that Jesus makes. The disciples say, why couldn't we heal? Jesus says, because of your little faith. And then he uses an illustration. It's one that we've seen Jesus use before about a mustard seed. Now, a mustard seed is the smallest garden seed that the Israelites use. It's one you, you put it in your pocket, you lose it. I mean, it's, it's small. You can barely see it in a hand. You can barely see it on a fingertip here. And Jesus says, the disciples have little faith. But then he says, if you have tiny faith, like a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. And so what we've got going on here is Jesus compares little faith to little faith. He doesn't, he doesn't compare it to faith like a mountain. He says, if you have little faith, you can move a mountain. And so what we see is he's not comparing the amount of faith. He's not saying, if you have great faith, you can do great things. He's saying, no, if you have the tiniest amount of faith. But the question is, what is the object of our faith? What is our faith in what is the quality of our faith? And then verses 22 and 23 offer us a clue about the disciples' lack of faith. You see, Jesus has a conversation with him again about his suffering, death, and resurrection. He's just had this with Peter, and Peter said, no, 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 far be it from you, Lord. And Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Now again, Jesus has that same discussion with his disciples, with all of them, and how do they respond? Verse 23, they are greatly distressed. You see, they can buy a conquering king, a king who will come and defeat his enemies, but a suffering king, one who dies... Not so much. They do not accept Jesus as he is. They can only conceive of him as they wish he would be. Yet this suffering king not only does great things himself, he also enables us to do great things. You see, we can through Jesus. Even the smallest amount of faith in the right object can accomplish great things. 
The idea of moving a mountain is a common first century Jewish expression. In other words, if they were coming upon some impossible tasks, that's like moving a mountain. So Jesus is taking one of their expressions and he's saying that actually is possible. The impossible is possible. Now you might think, well, I've never moved a mountain. But which is harder, to save an eternal soul or to move one mountain? And yet God says that the prayer of faith can save a soul. Jesus, he gives us this picture. Someone says mountain move, and the mountain literally moves, like, like kind of sprouts feet and moves. Now, Jesus and his disciples have just been up on this mountain. I mean, they, they've, they've walked it. They've seen how big it is. And he says, you can speak to the mountain and the mountain will move. This is no ethereal picture for them. This is no distant image. This is something they've, they've just traveled. They've just hiked down this mountain. And Jesus says, if you speak to it, you can make the mountain move. And then for the person who looks at Jesus in faith, he makes a remarkable promise in verse 21. Nothing, nothing, he says, will be impossible for you. This feels absolutely unbelievable. It feels impossible that this could be possible. But Jesus says there's not a single thing under heaven or earth that is impossible for you through Jesus. Well, what about the times that we pray and the mountain doesn't move? What about when we speak and the mountain is still there? Well, ultimately, the mountain moving isn't about the amount of faith we express. It's about the will of the Father. Jesus says, if you ask anything according to my will, he will do it. 1 John 5 reminds us, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, and we know that we have the request that we ask of him. In other words, if it's God's will, it's as good as done before you even ask. God can do anything. Jesus' faithfulness is more than enough for our faithlessness. Are you weak? That is where Jesus' power becomes most evident. Jesus' power meets the gap in our weakness. Jesus' power meets the, the gap in our powerlessness. His faithfulness fills up our faithlessness, and prayer bridges that gap. See, Jesus intervenes in the life of the disciples, and he has more than enough grace for you too. More than enough grace for your sin. More than enough grace for your failure. More than enough grace for your fear. More than enough grace for your shame. More than enough grace for your guilt. More than enough grace for you. Brothers and sisters, do you believe this? Jesus says that it is so. Nothing is impossible through Christ. And this brings us from the mountaintop of possibilities to the first century IRS as they come after Jesus in verses 24 to 27. We see that not only is Jesus a king through whom the impossible is possible, he is also a king who submits to ordinary responsibility. Let's pick up reading in verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. 
So Jesus comes as Messiah and King. He comes healing, preaching, teaching the gospel of the kingdom, and yet he's also mindful of the fact that he is a human being with human responsibility. Jesus and his disciples continued traveling. They entered the town of Capernaum. Capernaum is right on the Sea of Galilee, and it's sort of, I don't know, the center of Jesus' ministry for much of his ministry life. As they arrive in town, the IRS shows up. The tax collector approaches not Jesus, but Peter, one of his disciples, and says, is your teacher going to pay the tax? Well, this tax is an amount that is common in Israel. It's a tax that all men between the ages of 20 and 50 pay. I mean, it doesn't matter where you are. If you live in Israel, this is your civic responsibility. If you live outside of Israel, if you're a Jew, it is your responsibility. Money for the tax is collected from Jews everywhere. The two drachma tax, it's, it's a revenue that keeps the temple going. It's the temple tax. Jewish documents tell us that Levites, Israelites, proselytes, and freed slaves all contributed to the tax, but women, slaves, and minors did not. Priests don't have to pay it because they care for the temple. Gentiles and Samaritans aren't allowed to pay it, but all good Jewish men pay this tax. And so when this guy shows up, it's a little bit like, do you ever get one of those uh, pieces of mail, and it says, this is not a bill, but it's a reminder that a bill is coming? That's what this is. It's not his tax bill, but it's a reminder the bill is coming due, and he's reminding him. So it's like, your bill is coming due. Peter immediately answers yes when asked if Jesus pays the tax. He understands the responsibilities of good Jews, and he doesn't know, I don't, I don't, we don't know really if he's seen Jesus pay the tax or not, but he knows what the responsibility of a good Jewish citizen is. Well, how many quarters does it take to make a dollar? Four. Well, you no doubt know that it also takes four drachmas to make a shekel. And so Jesus tells Peter to, to, to get a shekel. So it's called a half shekel or two drachma tax. But, but what you've got going here is that over time, they stopped making these half shekel coins. Sort of like right now, you know, a 50 cent piece isn't valuable, but it's not common. And so they aren't minting a lot of these things. And so what happens is, because they're not common, you have kind of two guys go together, two households go to their, together, and they pay the tax together because the coin that you needed wasn't common. They just kind of go together. And so that's what Jesus does. He teams up with Peter, as other men are no doubt doing, and he's going to pay this tax. So Jesus pays the tax just like anyone else, but the way he pays it isn't like anyone else. He demonstrates his kingly authority even in the way that he pays the tax. Well, after the conversation between the, conver the conversation with, with Peter and the tax collector, we have a conversation with Peter and Jesus. And Jesus asked Peter a question, from whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from other people? So Jesus is teaching Peter simultaneously on two parallel planes. He's talking about life on earth, kings of the earth, and he's also talking about life in heaven. There's this, there's this kind of double meaning going on here. As we were talking about this passage at dinner this week, I suggested to my children that the way that I could begin to pay my bills was to collect taxes from them. For whatever reason, they did not think that was a good idea. They, they desired to contribute their funds elsewhere. Now, they did remind me that we do have one allowable tax in our house. We call that the dad tax, and that is this, that when you get an ice cream cone, I get one free lick. So there's, there's one allowable tax. Other than that, there are no taxes permitted in our house. You see, kids know parents shouldn't tax them. And so Peter knows that it'd be silly for a king to tax his own children. Earthly kings would exempt their kids from normal taxes, and in the same way, Jesus, as God's son, is exempt from any tax owed to the temple. Jesus, the creator of all things, is the eternal son of God. He has no obligation to pay this tax, let alone any other tax. He owns all things. 
he can literally make the money materialize in midair, and he kind of does by making the pier of this fish's mouth, or maybe some unfortunate other fisherman dropped his shekel and the fish swallowed it, and that fisherman doesn't have his tags. We don't know. But when you open its mouth, Jesus says, you will find a shekel. It's every fisherman's dream. You catch a fish with a treasure inside. So if Jesus doesn't have to pay the tax, why pay it? Verse 27, he does this not to give offense to them. Jesus has no obligation to do this. He can rightfully say, not my problem, don't need to pay it. Yet, he doesn't. Why? Well, when Jesus talks about offending someone, he's not talking about upsetting them or making them angry. We know this, for one thing, because he made a lot of people angry. He wasn't really worried about upsetting people. And also because this word offend means to cause someone to sin or to place an obstacle in their path, to prevent them from from getting somewhere. And Jesus uses it typically to describe someone, to prevent them from coming to Jesus, to offend them, prevent them from getting to Jesus. John 11, uh, or Matthew 11, John the Baptist's disciples come to Jesus, and Jesus is teaching them. He says, the poor have good news preached to them. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me, or who is not prevented from coming to me. Jesus upsets plenty of people in his ministry. So he's not worried about upsetting a few people here. Rather, he is concerned with removing any unnecessary obstacle to the gospel. There are necessary obstacles, like believing that you're a sinner, like believing that you are accountable to a creator God for your sin, like believing that Jesus is the only way, like believing that the good news of God through Jesus is the only way to Christ. Jesus has no obligation to pay this tax, but in humility he pays it so that his life as a citizen on this earth won't prevent people from coming to faith in Christ. Jesus came to rescue sinners. The most important part of his mission is preaching the good news of salvation through Christ. As we look at the life of Christ here, we have to ask ourselves, what obstacles do we place in people's path? What obstacles do we add to the gospel? What do I do that keeps people from getting to Jesus? Is your life one that leads to Christ, that points the way to Jesus, or is it one that erects kind of a stumbling block? You call yourself a Christian, and yet the way you live on the golf course or at work is so different from the way you live at church that it actually erects obstacles to coming to Christ. If people think, if Jesus is like that, I don't want that Jesus. And to drill a level deeper, what obstacles do we as a church place in people's paths? I mean, look, the Bible is clear about a lot of really, really hard things. (laughs) There are a lot of things that flow against the grain of the culture, and the last thing we want to do is be adding things ourselves to people getting to Jesus. Like the way we treat each other. Like our attitude to the way God works. If you don't get on board with what I want, then I'm not giving. I mean, I'll be here, but I'll cross my arms on the inside. Paul says, if our gospel is hid, it is hid from those who are perishing. When we hide the gospel by our way of life, we are preventing people from coming to Jesus. The way we live does affect the spread of the gospel in our community. And brothers and sisters, we have a gospel worth spreading. A Savior worth shouting to the mountaintops who empowers us to do impossible things. 
Mark tells us a story about this demon-possessed boy, and Matthew leaves out one detail, some of the father's words. You see, he falls at Jesus' feet. He says, Lord, help me. And Jesus says to him, all things are possible for the one who believes. And do you remember what the father says? He says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. He wants to believe, and yet he wrestles with this lack of faith, with his unbelief in his heart. The presence and the power of God are here for us if we can see it. We have to access the power of God by faith. We just have to see. So if you find yourself struggling this morning with whether this is even possible, with whether Jesus is even active and alive and at work this way, pray the same prayer the Father prayed. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I see, help my blind eyes. Lord, I want, help me when I don't want. God, I want to, I want to, I want to, but God, sometimes I don't. It's like Paul put it a different way in in Romans chapter 7. He said, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I ought not to do, those are the things I do. God, it's two steps forward and one step back. Lord, help my unbelief. Perhaps you're here wrestling with a more basic question of your basic belief in Jesus as the Savior. If you haven't yet turned from your sin and trusted Jesus, will you cry out to him to save you? And the impossible becomes possible. He will save any sinner who cries out to him in faith. Will you trust him now? Let's close this time now. We'll take a moment and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally and then I'll close this time in prayer.